while trying to solve the mystery of who fired on the Klingon ship in the film The Undiscovered Country, Mr. Spock uttered the quotable line, an ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the solution. Upon reading the opening verses of Genesis chapter 6, we encounter a situation we immediately find to be improbable. We're told that certain fallen angels called the sons of God married and mated with the daughters of men producing giants. It so challenges our thinking that commentators try to argue that the sons of God aren't fallen angels at all, but rather the human descendants of the godly line of Seth, who marry ungodly, non-believing women from the line of Cain. And the kids from their union aren't really giants, they're just rebels against God. I think I can show you how that interpretation and all other natural ones are in fact impossible, leaving us with the improbable but true interpretation that fallen angels did indeed marry and mate with human women. Uh, Here's a quote by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He says this, verse 2 describes intermarriage. The first key phrase is sons of God. The term sons of God is a general term which means to be brought into existence by God's creative act. Because the term carries this meaning, it is used very selectively. Throughout the Old Testament, the term sons of God is always only used of angels. This is very clear when the usages of the term are compared in the Old Testament. No one debates that the other places where sons of God is found in the Old Testament clearly refer to angels. But some want to make Genesis 6 the one exception, and there is simply no warrant for making an exception here. In the New Testament, the term sons of God is expanded. Adam is called the son of God because he was brought into existence by creation. Believers are called sons of God, but it's because we are considered to be new creations. In Genesis, the text is dealing with a specific Hebrew expression, benai Elohim, And as it is used in the Hebrew, it is a term that is always used of angels. The distinction in this passage then is not between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain, but between humanity and angels. The word men here emphasizes humanity. The term sons of God emphasizes angels. Now the phrase in question is rendered mighty ones in Psalm 29, heavenly beings in 89.6, Psalm 89.6 and angels three times in Job. It always refers to celestial heavenly beings. One scholar pointed out that the phrase refers to God in extra-biblical writings as well. So uh, the things that were written in the same period of time and later on uh, that are not biblical also use that term in that same way. The earliest commentary on these verses is the book of Enoch which identifies these as fallen angels. Now, in a subsequent study or two, we'll get to the book of Enoch and talk about some fascinating things in and about that book. But in that book, quoted by New Testament writers, uh, Enoch identifies these fallen ones as angels. The Jewish historian Josephus, who we're familiar with, refers to them as fallen angels. Early church fathers referred to these as fallen angels up until the middle of the fourth century. When Jesus' original audience heard him refer to the marriages in Genesis 6, referring them to the days of Noah, they would have immediately understood that he meant that they were fallen angels. Something else to consider. If these guys were human from the line of Seth, 
they can hardly be called godly if they intermarried with the non-believing descendants of Cain. Would truly godly men marry definitely ungodly women? So that's, that's a problem with the Seth argument. They're, the argument that, no, these are just godly men who descended from the good line of Seth getting involved with the wrong kind of girls from the line of Cain. But in doing so, they would prove that they were unrighteous and ungodly, so that falls apart. So if we keep the big picture in mind, these verses clearly describe intermarriages that are not just unusual, but also unnatural, leading to the judgment of the worldwide flood. The argument that these were mere men marrying women doesn't hold up biblically, and it doesn't hold up logically. So let's notice a few other things in these verses about the sons of God and the daughters of men. <clears throat> Chapter 6, verse 1, Genesis. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. The word for men is generic and means humanity in general. Men and women from both the lines of Seth and Cain were marrying and they were multiplying. Daughters means females in general. There's no distinction between the daughters of Seth and the daughters of Cain. Any such distinction would have to be forced on the text. Uh, verse 2, And the sons saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. You notice that it is always the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Nothing is said about daughters of God marrying the sons of men. If this were about intermarriage among humans, it would go both ways. You would have uh, sons of God marrying daughters of men and da son daughters of God marrying sons of men. In verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and yet his days shall be 120 years. The situation was so bad, God decreed the judgment of the global flood. It would destroy what we read about in verse 4. It's hard to understand how believers marrying non-believers would invoke such a radical judgment on the part of God. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't want to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We tell people that um, from the Bible. Uh, when people call the church and they say, hey, you know, we're engaged. We're wanting to be married. Uh, we'll, you know, can you marry us? Can you officiate uh, one of our first questions, if we don't know everybody, is, are you, are you both Christians? Um, and uh, my, personally, I will marry two Christians. I'll marry two non-Christians, but I can't marry a Christian to a non-believer. And so I get a lot of, um, uh, is your fiancé a Christian? Well, I'm not sure, but they're a really nice person, or, you know, that kind of a thing. Or a lot of times... Uh, parents leave it up to me to determine if they're Christians. I'll ask the parents, hey, are, is your future son-in-law or daughter-in-law a Christian? Let me know after you talk with them. And so <laughs> I get all the good jobs. But anyway, uh, so, so, you know, the Bible doesn't want people to be unequally yoked, Christian with non-Christian, uh, because it leads to uh, misery later on in the marriage. A global flood to wipe out the entire human race. And I think I'm not saying intermarriage between non-believers and believers isn't a, a bad thing, but I don't think it rises to the level of global uh, apocalypse. Uh, and so something big was going on here. And verse 4 tells us, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
The verse literally reads, there were Nephilim on the earth in those days. Now, we're going to dedicate, again, at least one whole study to these guys, to who the Nephilim are. For now, let's simply notice that there was something quite unusual about them. Here's another quote from Fruchtenbaum. He says, the second word to note in this verse is Giborim, which is translated as mighty men, men of renown. Again, because this was a product of fallen angels and human women, they were unique. They were the Giborim. Notice that there is no mention of mighty women, which would be strange if this were a product of a natural union. After all, a normal union produces both males and females. And so, just to stop in the quote for a minute, he's saying that, that whatever was happening, only men were being, only these male creatures were being born. There were no females. And so something strange is happening. This isn't just men and women, godly marrying the ungodly, producing offspring. And then back to the quote, if this were a natural union, then the product should have been mighty men and mighty women, but there are only mighty men because this is a new race of beings that is neither human nor angelic. The only way to explain the origin of the Giborim is that they were the product of this union. Now, these bizarre events are echoed in the legends and myths of every ancient culture on the earth. The ancient Greeks, the Egyptians, the Hindus, South Sea Islanders, the American Indians, virtually all others have stories about these creatures. Uh, I used to love on Saturday mornings watching cartoons and then it would go into Jason and the Argonauts sometimes, those crazy old Greek movies where they have to go for the Golden Fleece and all these terrible centaurs and minotaurs and half men, half gods. And those legends come from the truth of what was happening in Genesis chapter 6. And they're in every culture all over the world. Uh, and so that, it, it's, it's very, very interesting to look at this logically. The more you get into these verses, the more impossible it becomes to say that the sons of God are merely men. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. The New Testament, by the way, <coughs> excuse me, agrees with the interpretation that the sons of God were fallen angels. Here are four verses, two of them in 2 Peter and two in Jude, that indicate these are fallen angels. This is 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and Jude verses 6 and 7. Peter says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment... And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And so Peter gives you the idea. Peter, by the way, talks a lot about the flood. He was fascinated with Noah. He gives you the idea here that something happened during the time of Noah that brought judgment. And it involved angels who were so bad that they have been reserved in chains of, of judgment already. They're already incarcerated. And then Jude adds to that. Jude says, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a manner similar to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so Jude talks about these angels again, and he indicates there was a sexual component to their sin. They went after strange flesh, which was uh, something uh, unnatural for them. 
Now, we know from other verses that certain fallen angels are temporarily confined in a place called the abyss, the abuso. You read about that in the book of the Revelation. At one point, they are released. And uh, you and I can be thankful we are not going to be on the earth when that happens. Uh, They're going to be released from there to wreak havoc on fallen mankind. Peter describes fallen angels who are permanently confined in a prison. He says it's in hell. The word for hell there, though, is Tartarus. Tartarus. It's not the abyss. These angels are in Tartarus permanently until the final judgment, at which time they will be cast alive into the lake of fire. And so we, we know that there are fallen angels that are, on the, uh, that are in action today, Satan's fallen angels that are on the earth and in the heavens and wreaking havoc. But there are also angels that are in the Abuso, and there are also angels that are in Tartarus. Kind of, Tartarus is kind of the pelican bay of the angelic prison system. It's for the worst of the worst, and they are never going to be let out. Their incarceration has something to do with the global flood, and by that I mean that what they did is connected to the judgment of the flood. And Jude tells us what they did that deserves such strong condemnation is they did not keep their proper domain, but instead gave themselves over to sexual immorality by going after strange flesh. He's describing a sexual union that is unnatural, in this case, uh, between fallen angels and human females. And so my endeavor tonight is to get you to see that this is biblical. Not, this is nobody's opinion. This is what you get from reading the Bible. We come to the Bible and it seemed, that seems improbable to us. We don't understand how that's possible. We don't want to believe that that's possible or that it actually happened. And so we come up with natural explanations that are not logical or biblical. If we just look at the words themselves, uh, we come to this amazing conclusion that fallen angels mated and married uh, daughters of men. Um, Now, it's at this point, folks say, wait a minute. Jesus said, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And they think that's a mic drop moment, you know, because they're angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. So what you're saying can't be true. Uh, They go on to argue from that statement that angels are sexless and incapable of reproduction. And that isn't at all what Jesus said. We are reading more into it. First, Jesus was discussing life in heaven, not on the earth. The question that came to Jesus, as I recall, they're trying to trip him up about things. And they said, hey, there was this guy, uh, this woman, and she kept, her husband's kept dying. So in heaven, whose wife will she be of these six or seven guys? And they thought they had Jesus. And Jesus said, look, I'm going to tell you a secret about heaven. In heaven, there isn't marriage. The angels don't marry and humans won't marry. Uh, He was answering a question about humans in heaven and whether or not marriages would continue. There would be no marriage in heaven and therefore no reproduction, not for angels, not for humans. When angels appear on earth, they are always in a body, and it is always masculine. They are nowhere in the Bible declared to be sexless. And so when you have to distinguish between what Jesus was talking about, angels in heaven, versus when angels are on the earth. Humans on earth do marry and reproduce. Jesus' words do not go so far as to say angels cannot marry and reproduce. They're dealing with future life in heaven, not life on the earth. Interestingly... When God's angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah, the wicked men of those cities wanted to do what? They wanted to have sex with them. 
Now, did they know they were angels? Uh, I think by the time they were rendered blind, they're starting to get some idea that these guys are supernatural. Uh, but the point is, there, this would not be strange in the Jewish mind at all, uh, because angels always appeared as men uh, in, in, in that form, and at least the guys in so Sodom thought that they could have sex with them. So we conclude that when Jesus said angels in heaven do not marry and produce offspring, it doesn't mean fallen angels on the earth cannot do so. That would be, again, reading something into what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say angels are incapable of uh, reproduction and marriage, and they're incapable of having that kind of physical body. Uh, he just said, no, in heaven things are going to be very different than they are right now. And if anything, he lends credibility to the thought that uh, this is possible. God promised Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that he would send a savior for the human race. And the savior would be born of a human female. He would be human. He would be the God-man, but he would be born through the line of men and women. A theme that is developed in the Old Testament is Satan's attempt to thwart the plan of God to bring a savior that would be born of a human female. Everywhere you look on the pages of the Old Testament, Satan is at work to destroy the coming of the Messiah. Uh, on up into the New Testament, the example that most of us are most familiar with is Herod's attempt to kill Jesus when the Magi come. They say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And Herod says, oh, I don't know, but when you find him, let me know. I, I'd like to worship him too. And uh, they find Jesus. He's about two years old. They worship him and they take off. They're warned not to tell Herod. Well, Herod gets upset and he orders the, all, all the infant children up to about two years old killed because he's trying to kill Jesus. And that's a satanic effort to kill the line of the Messiah. And so, so Satan is all about trying to keep Jesus from being born throughout the Old and New Testament until he actually is born. So polluting the gene pool certainly would be a strategy of Satan's and it would have worked if not for God saving righteous Noah and his sons. In the flood, all the unrighteous perished, including the Nephilim. And so we're making the argument that these fallen angels came and in their marrying and mating human females, they pollute the entire race of, of, of men by affecting the gene pool. And only Noah and his sons are righteous and God wipes everybody out and starts all over again with clean DNA through those guys so that he can bring the Messiah as promised. Something big was going on around the time of the flood, not just your general run-of-the-mill wickedness. After the flood, the earth is repopulated by the righteous family of Noah, preserving the line of the promised Savior, and Satan has to ramp up for a new strategy and try and figure out something else that he can do to destroy the Messiah. God didn't decree the global flood simply because mankind was spiraling deeper and deeper into sin. It wasn't on account of the proliferation of violence or any other such characteristic. I think we talked about a few weeks ago that there are characteristics of the age of Noah. Violence was one of them. Men were extremely violent. But I think you can make a case for almost every age of man that it's more violent than the age preceding it. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you watch some of those movies that uh, are set in World War I. Guys in those little trenches breathing mustard gas. And, I mean, it, it was awful. Coming back maimed and, and you know, without 
uh, well, just, it's terrible. And at the time, you would have said, this is the worst violence that the world has ever known. And, uh, you know, now, of course, we can nuke ourselves into oblivion. And we say, this is the worst it's ever been. And so, it was bad in the days of Noah. Terribly bad, the violence and, and the wickedness and all that. But something really, really horrific was taking place. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, when this kind of marriage was happening. That's what he keys in on. He says, it's these marriages that I want you to concentrate on. There was something terrible going on. These marriages between fallen angels and human females that were producing weird offspring that seemed incapable themselves of reproduction. When I tell you some of the stories that, and, and you know, there's not too much in the Bible about the Nephilim other than their existence, but some of the legends that have grown up around them and some of the stuff in the book of Enoch will blow your mind. Let me give you a clue. When Jesus said, remember that full statement, some of you are thinking, you know, Gene, Jesus also said they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. So what about this eating and drinking? Sounds like they were having a, a wedding feast. Um, but we've already established it wasn't normal marriage. When he says eating and drinking, that actually comes out of some things that Enoch says in his book. Enoch's not a Bible book, but Enoch is a book that Jews read, and, and, it, and it preserved a lot of what Jews believed. Uh, the eating and drinking that's being talked about, are you ready for this? It's cannibalism on the part of these Nephilim, because it is they are described as having insatiable appetites. They're like Frankenstein, essentially. You, may, you know how... And, Anyway, they have these insatiable appetites, and they couldn't eat enough, and so they started eating human beings. That's the eating and drinking. They were eating them and drinking their blood. Uh, and so that, that's, Jesus said bad things were happening in the days of Noah. So bad that God said, I'm going to kill everybody except eight people who are going to start this thing, who are going to reboot this thing. It was because the human race was itself in jeopardy on account of Satan's fallen angels tampering with our DNA, producing these weird offspring. Now, I've been documenting in our prophecy updates on Sunday morning that scientists now have the gene editing technology to, as they are saying, change all biological life on earth and to control human evolution. I try and be careful. We try and be careful as a church not to be sensational. I've been around long enough around Bible prophecy to have heard all the sensational claims. I remember waking up probably in, must have been 1979 or 1980, on the day that the Jupiter effect was to take place. The Jupiter effect was an alignment of planets. All the planets were going to be in, the, in alignment with Jupiter, and its gravity was supposed to do something fierce that was going to, you know, trouble the earth. And everybody thought, well, this is it. This is, the Lord's going to come, and this is the beginning of the tribulation. And, uh, it was just work as usual all day during the Jupiter effect. There was no Jupiter effect. It, it came and went. And there's always something like that, uh, you know, where you're saying, oh, this is it. So we're careful not to do that. We just say, hey, this is the news. Seems like that could have something to do with Bible prophecy. This new technology that I'm talking about, this CRISPR technology, scientists themselves are making these kinds of claims. Not, it's not prophecy teachers. It's not prophecy buffs. It's not wackos on the Internet. The scientists who have discovered this technology and are using saying, this will change all biological life as we know it. We're going to be able to do whatever we want to human beings. You want, how do you want to evolve? You want to be Wolverine? You, you want to be Xavier? 
who do you want to be in, as, a, as an X-man? And we can do that probably pretty soon by adjusting your genes. Who do you not want there to be on the earth? What kind of weaknesses do you want to get rid of? Uh, you know, it's, it's Brave New World. It's Gattaca. It's, but this is what the scientists are saying, not us. They're saying, we, we've, we've got it. We've got the knife right now. We can wield this power. And we're going to do so. Thus, it is as the days of Noah. And just as then, God plans to intervene. We know that his intervention will take the form of the Great Tribulation. Where all mankind will just about be wiped out. But Jesus will return to save it and save us and set up his kingdom. Amen?